and welcome to episode 140 of Real Life Ghost Stories. To kick things off this week, we need to thank our newest Patreon subscribers. I would like to thank Kim, Kayla Golden, Thea Granger, Samantha Wilkins, Kim Kelly, Jenny, Stella the Amazon, Ileana Meza, Liesel Taquini, Sam Obard, Ash Blackburn, Priscilla Hughes, Charles Jones, the Crafty Heifer, Daniel, Jennifer DeFord, Jesse Saria, Pauline Horniblow, Sari, and Veronica Biscuit. Thank you so much for subscribing to the Patreon. It is so appreciated, and I'm thankful for you every single day. And I've got a promo for you this week. I love playing promos on the show. It's one of my favourite things to do. And this promo is for the Royal Philharmonic Chainsaw Massacre. And the Royal Philharmonic Chainsaw Massacre is a film podcast. And your hosts, Matt and Freya, share their thoughts on movie news and talk genre, directors, franchises, and throw in the odd review of films old and new. So if you are a film buff, if you love talking about films if you're interested in current up-to-date movie news and this podcast is for you. It's also non-pretentious and non-stuffy and just a good chat about film-related topics. Matt and Freya as well are just really lovely people so I'd really love it if you could show some support to them. That's the Royal Philharmonic Chainsaw Massacre. The link to that is in the description of this episode. So have a listen to their promo. Go and like and subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, this is Matt and Freya. You might remember us from such podcasts as Full Movie Podcast. Well, we're back with a brand new show. Introducing the Royal Philharmonic Chainsaw Massacre. A brand new podcast where we will discuss the latest movie news, review films old and new, and take a deep dive into the film by asking challenging questions such as Why is Limitless called Limitless when there are actually limits to his limitlessness? Or, who would you cast in the remake of? Limitless? Sorry, I, I recently watched that film and I've got it on my mind. Other films will be discussed on the show. So join us soon for our brand new All Singing and Dancing Film Podcast. Only available everywhere. And our film review this week, yes... I am doing a very short and sweet film review and today's film review is Candyman. Candyman was released in 2021. It has 6.4 out of 10 on IMDb and 84% on Rotten Tomatoes. Anthony, a visual artist, meets an old timer who exposes the true story behind Candyman. Anxious to use these macabre details as fresh grist for his paintings, he unknowingly unleashes a terrifying wave of violence. So I went to see this film in the cinema this week and I had really high hopes for it because it is another Jordan Peele film. And I need to say, before I start talking about this film, I am not a person of colour. I'm a white woman and primarily this film focuses on the experiences of people of colour. So I'm not going to try and lecture people on the experiences of black people because that would be inappropriate but I think I just wanted to say that before I started that's not my intention it's not what I want to do and I don't think it would be appropriate for me to be lecturing people on the experiences of black people 
So I've split this into things that I really liked about the film and things that I thought were not so good. So firstly, the acting in this film was great. There are some really, really strong performances just all around, just by everybody. Lots of the characters are really unlikable. The character of Anthony, who is played by Yahya Abdul-Mateen, he is your classic horror film protagonist who's also an antagonist because you just think Anthony mate what are you doing everything is pointing towards your actions being a bad idea and yet here we are still performing those actions so he was he was really good because he toes that line of you feeling sorry for him but also feeling really frustrated by his behavior like I said it it, it tackles really heavy issues like racism, violence against people of colour and black communities in particular and also this problem of gentrification of communities and how these places where communities are really struggling are gentrified and then artists use those struggles to create and sell art and it's a really like a really complex thing to try and explore and understand and because it takes place in the art world it's really beautiful visually there's lots of stunning shots in it of different art pieces there's lots of really good framing which I thought was really just beautiful to look at throughout the entirety of the film there were these references to urban legends and not just the urban legend of Candyman so within the urban legend of Candyman there's that great urban legend that we've all heard at various points about people finding razor blades or needles in their Halloween candy that when it gets handed out at Halloween the the sweets or the chocolate or the candy is like spiked with razor blades and that becomes a part of the narrative and one of the characters has an amazing line about how stories like Candyman or urban legends that grow up they happen because we just can't cope with the horror of reality and I thought that was really interesting and I I loved that idea for the film that these urban legends are born because reality is too awful and actually for a lot of people within the community in the film reality was awful so it's understandable that these urban legends grew up in order to make the supernatural take away the heat from what was happening in reality so it is like it's it's an it's an interesting watch and I really I really enjoy Jordan Peele and the way that he gives us a new framework to explore these ideas around racism and violence and gentrification. So I think that's really interesting to watch. However, it's a couple of things. It isn't very scary as a horror film. I mean, I guess the reality that the film is centred around is, is scary enough. But if, you, if you're if you going to the cinema to watch this as a scary film that's going to keep you up at night... It's not really it. The, the The horror elements are pretty pretty subtle, but the gory elements are pretty to the forefront. Um, so it's not it's not it's not particularly nightmarish. And that's said as somebody who walked home on their own after watching it, and then went to my bedroom, which is currently full of antique mirrors, and I was okay with that. Did I feel the urge to stand in front of the mirror and say Candyman five times? I absolutely did. Did I do it? I absolutely did not. Because you know what? That's not something I need to take a risk on right now. So it's not particularly terrifying. But like I said, I guess the reality of the situation is what makes it scary. I did think as well that there were a lot of elements 
that Jordan Peele tried to squeeze into a short space of time. So when you're tackling really big issues like racism and violence, gentrification and what that actually means, like those are all big old issues to tackle on their own and tackling all of them within the one movie is a pretty big thing to do. And it kind of resulted, I felt anyway, it resulted in there was there was some threads that really needed even their own film to, to fully explore properly. So yeah, it was it was interesting. Try to do a lot in a short space of time, which maybe wasn't wasn't necessarily a good thing. It what it's not particularly scary as a horror film. There are very gory elements in it. There's bits of it that are freaky, and there are uh, there's there's really heavy issues that are being tackled. The one thing I will say that stressed me out the whole way through the film, and I feel like this was probably pointed. In fact, I read a review where it was like they talked about how this was a this was a choice. Anthony early in the film this isn't a spoiler don't worry early in the film he gets an injury he gets stung by a wasp or a bee rather and the sting becomes infected and his hand basically like fucking rots away nobody takes that nobody questions his hand and his arm and eventually his face just rotting away nobody talks about it I, I think I think it was pointed. I think it was a. I get that it was meant to be part of the conversation, but but dear God, his face was melting away. His arm was whizzing up in front of his eyes and everybody else's eyes, and nobody talked about it. And it stressed me out the whole way through the film. Everything else I could handle, but his wizened up arm stressed me out. So in all, I probably I'm going to give this film a four out of five really enjoyed it definitely well worth a watch and if you are a big fan of the original it's not going to like ruin the original for you or it doesn't take anything away from the original or it doesn't try and be the original in the modern world it's just a really interesting continuation of the story so definitely if you're on the fence about going to see it I would go and see it it's a four out of a five from me which brings us to our story this week a couple of weeks ago, I was in a charity shop and I happened to, by chance, find a book all about the X-Files, the TV show. It's like a big hardback book, but it explores the cases behind particular episodes of the X-Files. So the, the true life stories that inspired particular episodes. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. So I bought it. And when I was flicking through it, I came across the story that we're going to cover today. So as always, the links to all of my research sources are are going to be in the description of this episode that includes video links if I talk about videos or book links if I talk about particular books so let's do this death comes to us all it's one of life's great inevitabilities along with taxes but what if death was only the beginning a rebirth a fresh start it's a pretty big statement to make But there are, of course, many people and cultures who believe that death is not final. Over the millennia, people of the Jewish faith, Christians, Hindus, Greeks and Native Americans have all believed in some form of reincarnation. And that list is by no means exhaustive. In episode 126, we spoke about Dorothy Eady, a girl from London who believed she had lived in ancient Egypt. In episode 62, we spoke about children who recounted their past lives to their parents. When we explore stories of past lives, people often say, but why are they always important people, 
at important points of time. Why not have memories of just an ordinary person in an ordinary place? And I need to be clear from the beginning. I'm on the fence about this one. But sometimes you come across a story that is so ordinary that it really makes you think. The story started as a filler for the pages of the Times magazine. People loved freaky little anecdotes and it seemed it was an easy win. Stories about flying objects in the sky and people who could read minds helped people escape from the horrors of their own realities. It's what led William J. Barker to Maury Bernstein. Barker was on the hunt for an easy story and had heard from his brother-in-law that his old neighbour Bernstein had a weird story about a girl who lived another life a hundred years before. Barker immediately suspected that it was at most a hoax and at least a great exaggeration, but experience told him that it was exactly what people wanted to read, so he decided to pay Bernstein a visit. Bernstein, as it happened, was a tough man to pin down, and when they eventually met, he was reluctant to part with his strange tale. I'm afraid you newspaper guys would make a circus out of this thing. But in time, he handed over his six tapes of extensive recordings that he had made with Ruth Simmons. This is Saturday, November the 29th, 1952. The time is 10.35pm. It's a clear, very cold night. The hypnotist is Maury Bernstein, and the subject is Mrs. Rex Simmons, aged 29. I've hypnotised this subject twice previously within the last six months and during one session I took her back on an age regression to the age of one. The lights were dimmed and the candles were lit. The atmosphere needed to be one that was calm and relaxing for the hypnotism to be effective. In a random chance at a dinner party, Ruth had demonstrated a susceptibility to be hypnotised and Bernstein had wondered whether or not it was possible to perform an age regression that broke the boundary of living memory and consciousness. Bernstein had done his research, and he knew that there had been cases where people had explored the possibility that we retained memories from past lives, that in the right conditions and with the right person, memories of past lives could be unlocked and explored in a meaningful way. The flickering candles cast shadows over Ruth's face. She was calm and relaxed and listened to the steady tones of Bernstein's voice. And then she was gone. Ruth never remembered anything after a session of hypnosis, but the people in the room waited with bated breath. Bernstein encouraged her to remember a time when she was seven. She talked about school and the boys and girls in her class. She talked about what she learned and wore and who she sat beside. And then to when she was three years old, where she described her favourite little dolly and her dog Buster. The bizarre thing about these sessions, at least for those who were watching, was that Ruth's language and presentation changed when she was recounting these memories. As a little girl, her voice became smaller, more childlike, and she seemed to lack the vocabulary that she had as an adult. 
She struggled to find the words to describe things and giggled a lot and almost seemed shy. But Bernstein needed her to go back further. He encouraged her to explore time before she was born. He told her to traverse the time of birth and to go to a time before. And to his surprise, she did. Bernstein gave Ruth approximately four minutes to find her place before she was born, before her time as Ruth began. And to everyone's surprise, she sounded completely different. She had an accent, and one that they had never heard her speak in before. Her voice rose and fell in a sing-song melody, and she seemed to be a little girl again. She talked about how she had gotten in trouble, and that she had scraped some paint off her metal bedpost in retaliation. Bernstein asked her how old she was, and she said that she was four years old, and that she lived in Cork in Ireland. She had a brother called Duncan, who was older than her, and her father's name was also Duncan. Her mother's name was Kathleen, and her name was Bridie Murphy. Bernstein guided Ruth through Bridie's memories, and through varying ages of her lifespan. Bridie told Bernstein that her father was a barrister, a word which definitely would not have been in Ruth's vernacular. She said that she attended a school and that she had red hair like her daddy. She went on to marry a man named Brian McCarthy and moved to Belfast where Brian had attended school to also become a barrister. She enjoyed her life in Belfast and went on to die at age 66. They had no children and she had fallen and broken her hip prior to her death and felt that she had become a terrible burden on her family as she was no longer mobile before she died. Bernstein asked her if she could speak any Irish words and she eventually managed to get the words Colleen and Brate out. Bernstein didn't know what a Brate was and she informed him that a Brate was a tiny cup which you drank from and then made a wish. She spoke about attending wakes where everyone would sit and drink tea prior to ditching people which seemed to be her way of saying burying them. She spoke of weddings where people would have Kayleys and dance the night away. She talked about a specific dance that people did when they were married, where the bride and groom would dance together with silver in their pockets. She talked about living just outside Cork with her family, and that after she died, she had hung around her house for a while, and then went back to visit her brother Duncan, and was surprised about how old he had become. After her death, she visited many people from her life, but they could never hear her, and eventually she was reborn, although she didn't know how or why, as Ruth, in Wisconsin. All right, now rest and relax. Clear your mind completely, because you're coming back to the present time and place. Now you're at the present time and place. You're perfectly relaxed, you're perfectly comfortable, you feel very, very pleasant. A soothing, comfortable sensation. I shall start counting forward five. When I reach the count of five, you will awaken and feel fine. One. Two. Three. Bernstein was intrigued by her. Was it possible that this was real? Could Ruth be remembering a previous life where she had lived in Ireland? He mused with a colleague about prodigies, 
Mozart writing a sonata at four years old and an opera at seven. Samuel Ryshevsky was a chess champion at five. And all of those children throughout time who have displayed extraordinary talents and abilities. What if they too were actually tapping into past memories? He needed another session with Ruth. And now you're going to go on further back. You're going to slip back, back, back. Your memory will go on back, back, back. And your memory will find yourself. You will find a scene in which you were included, perhaps in some other lifetime, some other age, some other time, some other place. You will pick up that scene which includes you. You will see that scene clearly and then you will tell me about it. In the second and third sessions, Ruth, as Bridie, outlined a trip she had taken to Antrim as a child when she was ten years old. She then went on to discuss her wedding to Brian McCarthy and that after she had moved to Belfast, there was trouble in the South when people began to rebel against the Crown. She admitted that her grandfather had told her never to speak in Irish because Irish was for peasants to speak. She spoke about Cúchulain, the warrior of legend that she had learned about from her mother. She told Bernstein about her brother who had died as a baby, but she didn't know what he had died of, just that he had gotten sick. She talked about the astral plane and told stories that her mother told her about the sorrows of Deirdre and the tales of Emer. She spoke of the Banshee and the long journey by horse and cart to get from Cork to Belfast. She mentioned the towns that she passed through like Carlingford and Bailings Crossing and how they referred to lakes as Loch. She talked through the steps of a dance she enjoyed called the Morning Jig. She said that she was born in 1798 and died in 1864. Bernstein decided to wake her up, but before he did, he said that he would ask her to perform the morning jig when she awoke as Ruth. He brought Ruth out of her hypnotic state and asked her to stand in the middle of the room. She did and looked thoroughly confused, but when he asked her to do the morning jig, her whole body changed and she nimbly and confidently performed a delicate jig which was completed with a melodramatic fake yawn. Ruth had no idea what just happened. Over the next few months, Bernstein set about fact-checking the information that Ruth had presented as Bridie. She had mentioned the Belfast Newsletter, which was a real newspaper. She said that her husband Brian worked at Queen's University in Belfast, which was also confirmed to be a university in Belfast. The Sorrows of Deirdre was a real story, but there was information that they just couldn't check from across the pond. And there was no evidence anywhere that Bailing's Crossing, for example, was a real place. It was only by chance that in the following weeks, Bernstein and his wife happened to meet a woman who had grown up in Northern Ireland. Bernstein decided to take a stab in the dark and asked her if she had ever been to Bailing's Crossing and she said that she had been through it many times. When Bernstein asked why it didn't show up on any map or atlas, she just laughed and said, You've obviously never been to Ireland. Locals have names for all sorts of places that don't end up on official maps. In her next sessions, Bridie recalled her life as a Protestant woman who married a Catholic man. She explained that his uncles were mad that he had married an orange, 
She talked about music, poetry and books that she liked. She said that she read the works of Keats, even though he was a Britisher. She said that Galway was a port town, but that she had never been there. She told Bernstein about the items that she bought and from what shops, and exactly how much these things would cost. When she talked about money, she was coy and hushed, and she explained that it wasn't her place to know about money as the woman of the house, and that as a Protestant she wasn't allowed to attend Mass with her husband. She talked about the mundane normalities of her life, and eventually, after six sessions, no more tapes were made. Bernstein was fascinated by her story and the possibility that it might be real. But there was so much that it wasn't possible to research from afar. He entrusted the help of an Irish law firm and gave them as much information as he had. They confirmed that there were two greengrocers in Belfast at the time, John Carrigan and William Farr, both of whom Ruth had mentioned by name and she had said what street they were located on. The costs of the items that she mentioned and the breakdown of the currency that she used was completely accurate to the time. She had described a specific dance that a couple did when they were married, which according to research, was also accurate. Keats's work would have been available to read, but increasing hostility towards the crown would have made him a controversial figure. Bridie referred to her father growing small amounts of tobacco to sell, which initially sounded bizarre and not accurate at all. But it was later discovered that tobacco was in fact grown in small areas of Cork, which was a fact that was not widely known. You may remember that Bridie stated that her husband worked at Queen's University. This was hotly contested by experts, who claimed that this would be impossible as Brian was a Catholic and Queen's was a Protestant institution. When Bridie was questioned about this, she had sounded annoyed and simply responded, It doesn't make a difference what he is. He teaches law, not religion. And it turns out that she was right. Despite tensions between Catholics and Protestants growing, Catholics were indeed permitted to work at Queen's during this time period. Bridie also mentioned a relation, an uncle who was called Plaz, spelled P-L-A-Z-Z, which seemed completely out of place in the story. But on further research, Plaz was a common derivative of the name Blaze, which was surprisingly common in Ireland. Blaze is the Catholic patron saint of throats, and the name was popular in small pockets. At the time the story was released, there were very serious attempts made to debunk it, and understandably so the story made some really wild claims about the possibility of past lives. I'm not going to go back and forth about the claims that were made, but what I can tell you is that fundamentally Bridie's story stands up to scrutiny. There were elements of it that made me raise my eyebrows, but when the story is broken down, it's very clear that Ruth had somehow acquired in-depth and nuanced knowledge about life in Ireland in the 1800s. I'm not going to go into the complexities of Catholic and Protestant life and the division, but her understanding of the complicated and multifaceted world of mixed denomination couples is fascinating. Some debunkers claimed that in her later teenage years, Ruth had lived with an Irish aunt, Marie Burns, who they claimed was, and I quote, as Irish as the lakes of Kilkenny. Important to note that there are no lakes in Kilkenny, 
and that Marie Burns was born in New York and had never set foot in Ireland. One of her neighbours was an Irish woman who was named Bridie Murphy, but when interviewed, Mrs Murphy said she hadn't really interacted with Ruth. So the conversation became about how Ruth had gotten this information, as the information itself was widely accurate. Skeptics suggested that it was an extreme case of cryptomnesia, where Ruth had subconsciously picked up this information and was now retelling it as a past life, rather than simply as memories. This suggests that Ruth was being genuine, in that she was not purposefully misleading anyone, and that Bernstein at least felt like what she was saying was compelling. And the other school of thought was that it was an outright hoax, that Bernstein knew the story would sell books. I don't know what I believe about this story. It seems that Bernstein had a determination to find someone to discover a past life with. His belief that he could do it, and that past lives existed, was already there, and he just needed to find the perfect person. Is it possible that he would have found his story whether he had met Ruth or not? Was he just determined to prove his point no matter what? Ruth is interesting though, and so is Bridie. She doesn't seem to have gained anything from this. Ruth Simmons is a pseudonym, and she had no desire to be exposed or continue the hypnosis, mostly because her husband found it really frightening. He became scared when Ruth would speak in a totally different accent and about things she seemingly knew nothing about. At points when she was under hypnosis, she would suddenly become sick, coughing and sneezing, which would disappear when the hypnosis finished. I read the transcripts for all six tapes, and there was something wholly and distinctly Irish about them. The turn of phrase, the way she talked about Catholic and Protestant divide and her life in general. So in short, I'm on the fence. Is this another case of our inability to cope with death, so we create a way to make us live forever? Was Bernstein simply desperate to either prove a point or sell a book? Or was Ruth really recalling her life as Bridie Murphy, a normal Protestant Irish woman who lived in the 1800s? So there are a couple of things to note about this story. And notably, I think the first thing is that the information comes from a book by Maury Bernstein called The Search for Bridie Murphy. And in it are the transcripts of the tapes. And they do um, they do read as being distinctly Irish. And I know that wherever you're from in the world, you will have your own way of speaking, turn of phrase, community language almost. So the stuff that she said was really interesting. And I think the way that she spoke about Protestant life in Ireland at the time was also really interesting. Even the idea that her grandfather told her not to speak in Irish because Irish was a language for peasants. Or in other words, Irish was a language spoken predominantly by Catholics. So it was really, in that respect, it was really interesting. The other thing is that the book kind of makes this point of talking about how Ruth Simmons, or her real name was Virginia Virginia Ty, she didn't want any notoriety or she kind of moved town anonymously because she was sick of of the attention that she was getting. I then found a TV show that she had gone on, which was specifically about this case. So I don't really know how little notoriety she actually wanted. Uh, It was a TV show that was about trying to find out who was telling the truth in a lineup of people. And it was specifically about the bridey Murphy story so it, it, I'll link it, the YouTube video 
in the description so that you can watch it if you want to. A lot of this stuff is really compelling, like knowing the specific names of greengrocers and the greengrocers that she talked about were in Catholic areas of Be- or in the Catholic area of Belfast at the time, and she would have lived in the Catholic area because she had married a Catholic man. She talked as well about how she had gotten married in a cottage because she couldn't get married in a church because obviously she was Protestant and Catholic, and her husband was Catholic rather. And then she went and ended up getting married in a Catholic church, and that her father took to the bed. Her father, you know, went went into a deep depression at the thought of her converting to. Catholicism so it's it's a really interesting there's some really interesting knowledge that she had I mean things like knowing that tobacco was grown in really small regions of Cork at the time and so I don't really know but there is one other thing that's really interesting and I think it's something that I I thought about a lot and when I was reading the transcripts I kept thinking to myself I'd love to hear her accent because they kept talking about her speaking in this distinctive Irish brogue. And I wondered what that meant. Because a Cork accent is a very specific accent. Because it's a it's a region. It's a county in Ireland. And a Belfast accent is a completely different accent altogether. Which you would be, even as a non-Irish person, you would actively be able to tell the difference between the two. Or at least recognise that they are completely different accents. So I really wanted to hear her speaking. Because they kept making reference to her speaking in an Irish accent. And how it was re- you know, remarkably different from her normal accent. And even at points in the transcripts it physically says. There will be a note that says that her Irish accent got stronger at this point. And then I found a recording of the first tape. In which her accent doesn't really sound very Irish to me and I don't know if it, if if that's just me I'm going to play a portion of it in a second and you know you can listen to it and decide yourself what you think of it um but it's it's a it's an interesting thing to listen to and I think it puts it in a slightly different perspective I don't know if I feel like Bernstein just wanted a story and she provided a good story for him or but I just think the specifics of it are really interesting. The little things that she knew were really interesting. I mean, is it possible that she did have in-depth conversations with an Irish relative or an Irish person that she met who had lived this life specifically and she was recalling them? I don't know. I don't know. But it's it's interesting. So I'm going to play the, the clip of her uh, of her hypnosis now so you can hear it and then you can decide for yourself. How old are you when you're playing house with your brother? Eight. What is the name of the country in which you live? Ireland. I see. Do you have any other brothers or sisters? Her one brother died. What did he die from? He was sick. Had some kind of black something. Black something, I don't know. How old were you when he died? We're four. Just four. He was just a baby. Do you have any sisters? No. Do you know how old your brother was when he died? No. Just another. Not one. Yet. Now that you are eight years old, do you know what year it is? 
Well. You don't know what year it is. Eight, 18 or something. Eight, 1806. 1806? Oh. 1806. Mm -hmm. Where does your father work? Where does your father work? It's a barrister. It's downtown, a barrister. Town in the village. What town? In Cork. In Cork. Alright. You say he goes downtown and what? There's a barrister. Uh -huh. He's a smart man. What games do you play? Play hide and seek. Look and Duncan finds me. Duncan finds you. Hmm. Can't find Duncan. He's knows better places than me to hide. Now tell me about your father. Is he a tall man or a short man? He's tall. What color hair? Sort of reddish, like mine. Your hair is red. Mm-hmm. Real red. I interrupt here to explain that Ruth Simmons does not have red hair. She is a brunette. And what is your name? Friday. Why did they name you Friday? Friday. Bridie. I see, Bridie. Why did they name you that? Well, they named me after my grandmother, Bridget. Oh. I'm Bridie. I see. All right. Now tell me about your mother. Is she a big woman or a little woman? She's medium, she is. What color hair? Black. Tall or short? She's just medium. And what is her name? Kathleen. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Just to remind you that the links to all of the sources that I use in today's episode are in the description of this episode. And if you want to know more about us, you can do so by logging on to reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com. You can also send in your own spooky story or experience to reallifeghoststoriespodcast at gmail.com. And on that note, we shall see you next week. <laughs>